Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 49 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. My guest today is a guy by the name of Scott Saul. Scott is a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. He is uh, part of a mainline church, Presbyterian Church. I've got some roots in that tradition and uh, also worked with Tim Keller for a few years in New York City and a number of other churches before that. He is also an author, and we are going to talk today about how to have a dialogue when you disagree with someone. And it kind of sounds like, you know, we should have figured this out a long time ago, maybe even in kindergarten, but um, a lot of us didn't. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my Facebook page, I just get discouraged some days. And I look at our social media, my social media feed, and I just see, you know, people who are just hating other people and complaining about things. And I'm like, really? This is where we've come to and we're Christians in the midst of it? And uh, Scott was bothered by that too. And he actually wrote a book about it. So we're going to talk all about how to stop hating each other as Christians and how to have a civil dialogue when you disagree. So I really, really hope this is going to help debate and dialogue. And I, I know for me personally, where I've really sort of encountered this is on my blog. So we always tell you about the show notes. And actually, you can get the show notes to today's podcast at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 49. But that blog, kerryneuhoff.com, is a lot more than just show notes. It's, it's where I write, where I've done writing for years, and I try to help leaders. And we don't talk about it a lot on this podcast. But if you've never hopped over to the blog, I would love for you to do that. Um, I know a lot of you found the podcast via the blog, but maybe it's the other way too. You just stumbled on the podcast and now you're like, oh, I didn't know you wrote. So yeah, I do write at kerryneuhoff.com. And there's a big debate in, in blogging circles this year about whether or not to allow people to comment. And uh, I know a couple of people I really respect who write have just gotten rid of comments altogether because they're so tired of picking through the trash of the trolls who get on there and, and start, you know, yelling at people. And I banned certain people from my blog, like you can't ever come back, You're, you are banned, your web, uh, you know, your website's banned, your address is banned, your email address is banned, like they're, they're just toxic people and they, they can't play on my site. And you might say, well, isn't that against free speech? Hey man, if you're at my house for dinner and you start like dressing down somebody across or insulting them or being rude, I'm going to ask you to leave. Like you can disagree, but you don't have to be disagreeable. And I, I'm really excited about this episode because I think it's going to help us hopefully in, in some way maybe find a civil voice. And, and I know you can't control the trolls, but here's what you can do. You can be civil. And, and this is my little encouragement, my little editorial. For all of you who are moderate, and I think like the vast majority of people who read my blog are like reasonable, awesome people. The vast majority of people I know who listen to this podcast are like incredible people. You just need to speak up. You need to get into the flow. You need to say something that like a normal person would say or a good person would say. And you just need to say it rather than being silent. And I think we can take back the dialogue. That's a bit of a, um, a little editorial thing. But, you know, I do hear from a lot of you. I hear from a lot of listeners via email, via comments on my blog. And the reason I haven't shut them down yet is because there's too many good people. And so sometimes it's worth having to ban the odd person and you know, even get some help in getting rid of the bad or offensive comments just so that the good people have a voice. So, hey, good people, thank you and use your voice. And 
I think when you think about disagreement in your church or disagreement in your community or online, guys like Scott are really going to help us uh, find our voice. So that's my little editorial for today. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of you would probably agree with that. So just if you're a good person, speak up speak up from time to time. We need to hear from you. We need your voice. The church needs your voice. Faith needs your voice. The interwebs need your voice. We need your voice. So say something good. Okay. And if you haven't yet registered for the Orange Tour, I'd love for you to do that today because uh, I'm going to be in a bunch of cities this fall. Uh, let's see, going to be in California and Nashville and Atlanta and Seattle, uh, a couple cities in Texas, Dallas and Austin and a few other places. I would love to meet you. And we are going to be gathering senior leaders and ministry teams to talk about how to impact the next generation. Registration is still open. Uh, space is going fast, though. So if you go to orangetour.org, you can register today. It's very economical. In fact, you can probably even afford to bring your whole team. And I would love to meet you this fall on the Orange Tour. So orangetour.org, you can go directly there or just go to the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 49. You'll find everything there. And in the meantime, without further ado, here's my awesome conversation. Or, well, I don't know whether my conversation was awesome, but here's an awesome guy you want to hear from. His name is Scott Sauls, and he's going to tell you and me how we can have a more civil dialogue, which is what I think we need. Well, I am super excited to have Scott Sauls with me on the podcast today. Scott, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's great to connect with you. And you just recently released a book. Tell us about that. Yeah, the book is called Jesus Outside the Lines, A Way Forward for Those Who Are Tired of Taking Sides. And mm. It was a project that was just birthed, uh, I guess, out of a growing sort of restlessness about, you know, things that I, you know, was observing just in terms of how conversations are being had publicly on contested issues like politics and sexuality and, and you know, various, you know, teachings of historic Christianity that we all struggle with and just wanted to sort of put something down and, and something out there that might hopefully help to contribute to a more gracious and civil way of entering into and engaging those types of discussion. Yeah. Now, you've been in leadership for a few years now. You are the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Before that, you worked with Tim Keller at Redeemer in New York City, and before that, a couple of other churches that you were involved with. Have you seen the dialogue change over the years, Scott? I mean, do you think it's worse now than it was or more polarized now? Or you think maybe the dialogue was always polarized, it's just now that people have publishing tools like yeah. Facebook and social media, it just seems more polarized. Boy, I think I think we've it's always been an issue in the human heart to sort of take sides and for our defenses to go up. I mean, you go all the way back to the the Garden of Eden, and that's what happened with Adam and Eve when when disaster entered the the equation for human existence when when the forbidden fruit was was uh, partaken of, and immediately you know eve started blaming the serpent adam started blaming eve and then adam started blaming god for giving eve to him and mm -hmm. and you know there there's posturing and self-justifying behavior all the way back to the garden of eden so i don't i don't think it's anything new i do think it's more pronounced in public and and a lot of that has to do with you know to your question social media the 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 rise of the the internet and how easy it is to get our outrage out there for the public to consume <laughs> and and you know slate magazine even did a a piece uh, at the beginning of this year identifying 
2014, this year behind us, as the year of outrage. And it, it <laughs> you know, just chronicled all the different things that we're mad about. And it's interesting that, you know, this, we were getting ready, ready to release the book when, yeah. when Slate came out with that. And I was like, okay, I, I guess we were kind of onto something when, <laughs> when we entered into this project. And I, I didn't know that outrage would become such a such a topic and now everybody's outraged about outrage and and, <laughs> and so it just keeps keeps going but I, I just want to turn my own heart back to and anybody who'll listen to me to where the scriptures calls Christians in particular to to lead in this regard in terms mm-hmm. of, of entering conversations uh, you know that can potentially be heated because there are differences of viewpoint, but to do so in, in gracious and disarming and life-giving ways and in, and in some way that that communicates, I love you, I want to be your friend, I, and our differences uh, of opinion and viewpoint don't change that. Hmm. In fact, they, they make me want to engage with you more if we disagree with this or that. And I, I think Christians are uniquely resourced to and called to, to having integrity in our convictions on the one hand and, and holding to what the things that we believe as we get them from, you know, the scriptures and the, the life and the way of Christ. And not in spite of our strong convictions, but because of our strong convictions about Jesus, to be the kind of people who genuinely love, listen to, and serve people who don't share our convictions. Yeah, see, that's a little bit unique, because I think where people get into trouble all the time is when we, you know, we say, well, we've got really strong convictions, so listen up. But you make the argument that, well, no, because we have strong convictions about Jesus, we're able to engage in a very, very different way. And, and so what does that look like? Like, walk us through that. What, is, what does it mean to have strong convictions, but not always be involved? And I mean, come on, I mean, all of us, my Facebook feed sometimes, I just want to delete everything. It's like people ranting about this, people debating that, people judging. It's yeah. very frustrating. And that's all coming from Christians. So how do we get out of that trap? Well, I think, you know, like anything, the first thing, and I, I assume that my primary, or at least my first listeners or my first readers are going to be people who have some level of engagement with, with Jesus Christ and some level of interest in him, you know, whether they you know, believe in him fully or not, they're, they're going to have some kind of interest in, in Christ, right? And hmm. so, because that's what the book is about. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to just, again, put the reader in front of Christ on the issue of politics or sexuality or you know money the issue of poverty and the people who are affected by poverty and to just start with a question where did jesus go with this like sexuality for instance i mean there were plenty of occasions where where we see christ engaging with you know sort of the first century ancient middle eastern version of a sexual minority right so that's sure. like the, that's like the big conversation now, at least, you know, in Western culture is, you know, sexual minorities, you know, you got transgender, you got, you know, same sex relationships, you got gay marriage being, you know, discussed right now by the Supreme Court, I think a decision might have been made by the time you release this podcast Mm -hmm. there. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, all all the, the sort of heated debate and discussion and consternation over sexuality that's happened 
publicly and culturally. And you look at Christ and you ask yourself the question, how did he engage sexual minorities of his day? Because, you, you know, you've got the woman who barges in to Simon the Pharisee's house. And, you know, she's, she's a prostitute, apparently, according to commentaries. You've got the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You've got, you know, Mary Magdalene, who was once a prostitute, yeah. who's also chosen by Jesus to be the first witness of the resurrection. It is a bit of a list, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but, but you know, the, 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 they're very, very striking consistencies in, in how Christ engages those scenarios. You've got a person who has, you know, blown it sexually, right? According right. To, to historic biblical teaching, they've blown it, right? Mm-hmm. And, so, and then you've got a group of people scolding that person and shaming that person and, and identifying them as a sinner and labeling them as a thing instead of as a person and things like that. Hmm. Never does Jesus come into any of those situations and scold the sexual minority. Instead, the only people that he, he scolds are the people who are doing the scolding. The yeah. only people that Jesus ever seems to say shame on you to is people who are saying shame on you to other people. And, and so he enters with grace, with tenderness, and he does say to the woman caught in, in adultery, your ethics do matter. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. But I think the order of that, those two sentences are incredibly important. I don't condemn you. Now let's talk about your ethics. Whereas I think where we get it wrong and have gotten it wrong for years, you know, the, the fundamentalists from the right got it wrong in the 90s and 80s, yeah. and now the fundamentalists from the left are doing the same thing. Because the public shaming has shifted. Yeah, the public shaming has shifted, and the power has shifted in culture from the right to the left, in mm. many respects, at least yeah, in has. Western culture. But it, it's just a new form of fundamentalism, because you know, a fundamentalist is somebody who's absolutely certain that they're right and looks at other people with contempt who don't agree with their moral vision. That's what the religious right and so-called moral majority did in the 80s and 90s, and that's what the the new moral majority on the left that, that's advocating for a more progressive ethic is doing. You know, Hadn't heard it described that way, but that is what it feels like is the moral majority of the left. But Jesus never gets embroiled in that. You know, He loves the person in front of them, and he says, our starting point is I don't condemn you. There's nothing that you could have done that is so shameful that it's beyond the reach of my love and my grace and forgiveness. Now that we've established that environment, now that, you, now that, that, that I've communicated to you that, that I genuinely love you, now let's talk about your ethics. Now leave your life of sin. If you reverse the order of those two sentences and you start with leave your life of sin and then we'll talk about whether or not I condemn you, you completely lose Christianity and you completely lose Jesus. And yet that's what seems to be happening in this culture of outrage is the condemnation comes first. Your ethics are wrong, whether you're coming from the right or the left. Your ethics are wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to condemn you unless you agree with me on, on the question of ethics. And so I'm trying to, I guess, in the book, advocate for a, a return to the way that Jesus dealt with a woman caught in adultery. Start with love. Start with grace. Start with kindness. And then let's talk about ethics out of that context. Right. I think that's a really helpful order, first of all, and and thoroughly scriptural. You're right. I mean, I've studied the Gospels as well, and in my personal studies, I'm shocked that Jesus' only scathing words are for religious people, not for immoral people or people on the outside, which... You know, we try to take a chapter from, but in some ways, and I don't know whether you would use these words to describe it, but like, it's kind of like grace and truth, right? The grace people somehow got 
in our culture or dialogue often dissociated from truth. It's like, it's all grace. I love you. I forgive you. And nothing matters. And the truth people have somehow become divorced or disengaged from love, which is let's talk about your ethics. Let's fix your ethics. Let's get your life right. And I still don't agree with you, but there's no love in it. Is it sort of a fusion of grace and truth that, that you're driving toward? Or how would you describe that? Well, I wouldn't describe it as a fusion because I, I don't think you can have truth without grace. And I don't think sure. you can have grace without truth. Like one without the other, you lose both. Mm-hmm. You know, truth without grace is really just a, a, a form of, of aggression with religious language put around it. You know, it, it's shaming with religion put around it. But grace without truth is, is you know, that's sort of the classic codependent enabling where, where I'm not going to challenge you to become the best and most life-giving version of who God created you to be. Mm-hmm. Because if I really love you, then, then I'm just going to let you do whatever you want. Well, how does that work out in parenting philosophy? How does that work out in any relationship where you say, I'm not going to challenge you on anything, and that's how I'm mm-hmm. going to show my love for you? I mean, thank God that, that God hasn't done that with us, you know? What, yeah. what kind of wreck would we be if we could just do whatever the heck we wanted, you know? And so you got to have both. You've got to have, you know, Jesus came, to your, to your point, full of grace and truth. Sure. You know? both together. And, and that's what, what a more healthy expression of Christianity, I think, looks like. Yeah, I agree. I don't think you can separate the two, but we try to. And you're right, that's counterfeit grace and it's counterfeit truth. It's not, it's not the genuine deal. If this is the essence of our faith, and I think you're right, it's the essence of our faith. This is who Jesus was. This is how he approached it. Why is it so difficult for so many people to live there? Why do we tend to flip to the, oh, it doesn't really matter, and truth is relative, and I'm not going to judge you, which means, really, I'm going to leave you alone, and I'm not going to help, classic codependent enabling, or that harsh judgment. Why do we get, I think most people get drawn to one extreme or the other, In you know, very, you f- find very few people who end up in that place that you describe, starting where Jesus started. So why is it so hard to live there if that's the core of our faith? Yeah, I think, you know, either direction you know, truth without grace, grace without truth. My belief is that both of them have the same root, and that's the fear of man hmm. that somehow replaces the fear of God. And by, by fear of God, I mean, you know, God's, what God, how God sees us matters more than anything else. That When I say the fear of God, that's what I mean, because that's what mm-hmm. I think the Bible means, that that we get our significance, we get our our esteem from what God thinks. And the fear of man is when we get our esteem, when we feed our esteem from what people think. And so you've got the Pharisees, and that's manis- manifesting itself. The, you know, the more sort of conservative-minded, legalistic Pharisees, you'll notice when you look through the Gospels that they cannot tolerate being criticized or challenged. They, they just can't, they want to throw Jesus off a cliff when Jesus you know, calls mm-hmm. him out on anything. They, they The solution to that is let's find a cliff to throw him off of. You know, let's plot for his death because he's critiquing us, you know, because the Pharisees' identity is so bound up in, in being right. And that has so much to do with how they appear before other people. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, don't pray in order to be seen by other people. Don't give yeah. in order to be, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing when you're giving. 
uh, you know, do all that in secret between just you and the Father, and that's completely contradictory to the Pharisees' whole way of doing things. Sure. You know, when they fast, they, they look mournful, so everybody will know they're fasting. And so th- that's, that has its root in the fear of man, just like cowardice does. The fear of challenging you, Carrie, because, you know, I see this, or you challenging me because you see this weakness or deficiency mm-hmm. in my character— um, you know, if we're afraid to do that, if we're if we're if we're cowardly, hmm. again, I'm I'm putting so much weight in what you think of me instead of in what God thinks of me, and it just causes us to act in either direction. You know, that's a great insight. There is cowardice in in what we often call grace or whatever you want to call it. You know, there's there's an unwillingness to confront. There's an unwillingness, ultimately, not just to confront, but to help. Right, there, there's an unwillingness there. There is unwillingness because, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a there's a quote in the book by a, a self-professing atheist comedian named Pendula, hmm. and basically what he says is, if you're a Christian and you're not trying to convert me, I have no respect for you. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, don't don't just take it from a Christian. Don't just take it from what the Bible says. Take it from an atheist who says, look, if you really think that that there's a God in heaven who is going to call us all to account for our lives, and you don't tell me that because you're afraid of a socially awkward moment, <laughs> and and he goes on, and this this is really insightful. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody? not to tell them the hard things that you believe are absolutely true, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it really, I think the, the unwillingness to loving, to loving, and the challenge has to be loving. Like, we, we, we don't have this sanctioning from the Bible to come after each other with, you know, and policing each other all the time and being harsh with each other. But, but speaking truth in love is the way that Christ put it. If we are unwilling to to speak the truth because we fear a socially awkward moment happening, mm-hmm. you know we, we're really a lot more about self preservation in that moment than we are about helping the person in front of us become more the person that God has created them to become, and in a sense that reflects a lot more fear than it reflects love. No, that's a really good point because, you know, I can see for those who are so concerned about appearances and righteousness that that is a fear of man thing. I've got to be seen as being right before God and and men and I have to be right. But I never really thought that, you know, on the what we might call the grace side or the, the you know, the I'm not going to confront you and nobody judges you side, that that too is is a fear of how you look in front of people. Really perceptive. So interesting. Let's get a a little more granular. This is a fascinating conversation, but you spent five years in New York City. Really fascinating incubator, working with a lot of young adults, right? Young professionals in their 20s and 30s. How did you see this problem that you're addressing of, like, how did you see that play out among them? On which side? The- well, do you probably, my guess would be you would get more of the non-judgmental, not going to, you know, or even the, the what you call the new moral majority, the shaming on the left of yeah. anybody who is not tolerant, sympathetic, accepting. Yeah. How? So let, let's start there. That's a good question, Carrie. I think, yeah, I think that the sexual ethic was... Mm-hmm. 
it's just very pronounced. It's very explicit that, you know, this idea that people should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies. I can sleep with whoever I want, whatever yeah, and, I want. It's just physical. It, it's, it was just as much inside churches as it was outside of churches. You know, <laughs> you'd be surprised where you've got actual, you know, people who lead small groups or who, you know, are part of a, a ministry, you know, serving the poor or what have you. And you, you, you come to, you, you know, and they ask you if, if, you'll officiate their wedding and, and you say, of course. And then you find out in the process of the, the premarital counseling that they're, they're cohabiting and mm-hmm. have been for years and living like they're married in every way for years. And, and you, you raise the subject and it's like, well, well, yeah, of course, you know, that's what people do. Well, well, have you looked at the, you know, the teaching of Christ on, on sexuality and well, you serious about that? You know, like, and, you know and, it, <laughs> and they've been sitting there Sunday after Sunday, message yeah, after and, message. Yeah, and it's a, you know it's a disconnect, and there are few people who are more more bold than Tim Keller in, yeah. in you know speaking about the you know I guess what I would refer to as a graciously historic you know view of biblical sexuality, but it's it's almost as if there's just this disconnect, like. But really, like you didn't really you, mean you that. really still believe that, you know, and, and I'm like, well, yeah, you know, and I've, I've seen a lot of disasters happen when, when people decided they weren't going to believe it and embrace it, you know. So and, how do you have that conversation? Because I think there's a lot of leaders who live in fear of that conversation or it very quickly becomes polarizing or, well, we're just going to agree to disagree. How do you go there? Because that's yeah. that's what you, you know, that's what you're passionate about. I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna. I'll just throw it out there. Sure. It, it's always going to always. You know, I've, I've been in pastoral ministry. I, I talk like I'm an old man, and I'm not. <laughs> I, I've been in pastoral ministry for about 17 years. Sure. In my experience, a grace without truth. You know, of, of just I'm not going to challenge you know ethics that are inconsistent with scripture. And I'm not just talking about sexuality. I'm talking about no, anything. Everything. Your use of money your relationship with food, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. If I am not willing to go there with you, and if I kind of let it go, it, it always gets worse. Every time mm. it gets worse and more dysfunctional, not less. You know, grace is not a license to sin, and, and it's not a license yeah. to just create your own path. It, it, you know, it's, it's the freedom that God offers us grace is to submit and surrender to Him, knowing that His design is for our flourishing whether we understand it or get it or completely or not, it is God's law, God's ethics are for our flourishing, not for our harm. And, and, and that's what true freedom is. Mm-hmm. The ability to do whatever the heck you want is not freedom. That's bondage. No. True freedom is the freedom to sur- surrender in every way to, to Christ. But it always, always goes wrong also if you flip to the other extreme and, and just legislate behavior and pound it in without yeah. any reasoning, without any gracious conversation. But what we, what we do is basically, you know, you know, on the one hand, we've got to be kind and gracious. And if people don't agree with our ethics, we've got to figure out a way to, to genuinely love, listen to, and serve people, whether they agree with us or not, period. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we have to be clear and not cowardly. 
about what we believe and and you know especially when asked and and we have to be willing you know Jesus said you're going to be persecuted he said all kinds mm-hmm. of people are going to hate you because of me and because of the things that I say and because of the the way that you repeat simply repeat the things that I say no matter how gracious you do it they're going to call you a bigot or they're going to call you whatever because and that's just the way it is because it's just the way it is and so so what we've got to do is take great care that the only thing that runs the risk of being offensive is the truth itself that Christ has said you need to tell this to, to, to the world around you, and that we deliver sometimes offensive truths in, in ways that cannot be described as an offensive way of delivering it. So did most of those conversations end up, you know, with you being or whoever being labeled as a, as a bigot, or did some of them really result in transformation? And if so, how? Like, how do you get to that point where it's not yeah. name-calling or where, where the conversation's over 60 seconds after it started? Yeah, I, I think for us, we, we have just been very careful to say, look, I'll just, I'll share with you a few stories. Hmm. here's how it turned out when certain others continue down the road that you're saying that you are committed to continue down. This is how it ended up for this person and this person and this person. And in fact, I've never seen a situation where somebody's continued down the road that you've continued, that, that you're wanting to continue down. And it turned out well for anyone in the equation. And, and, and I, you know, that's what Francis Schaeffer talked about a lot was, Take people's worldview and, and walk them to the logical conclusion of, of the path that, that their worldview takes them down. And then do the same with the Christian worldview and, and take them to the logical end of, of, of where it leads. And, you know, Paul, Paul is like this in Acts 17, too. I think this is the one other mm-hmm. thing that I would say is that, that when we're in conversations that involve disagreement, there's got to be affirmation in there along with the critique. And, there, and there's got to sure. be critique along with the affirmation. Like you look at Paul in Acts ch- chapter 17, and he's talking with secular intellectuals. They're idolaters, it says in Acts 17. They're worshiping false gods. And, and the very first thing that Paul says to them is, men of Athens, I, I recognize that you're very religious. Yeah. That's very interesting. It says that he's, he's torn up inside. He's, 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 he's agonizing on the inside because because their their worship is directed toward gods that are not true. Right. And it's a destructive thing. And yet he he tries to find something good to say. You're religious. You're seeking meaning. You're seeking truth. You're seeking beauty. That quest in and of itself is a good thing. And then he goes on to quote their philosophers and their poets from memory, you know, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And and you know, those worldviews in and of themselves were pretty destructive. But mm. even in those worldviews, there are nuggets and kernels of truth and beauty in there that, that, that Paul is pulling out and saying, this is where our worldviews agree with one another. And let's start there. Let's start with the affirmation before we start getting into the critique. Let's start on the, the agreement points and the, the bridge building points. And then let's walk across those bridges together. And, and so, you know, just treating people with simple dignity and respect. You know, Paul talks about, you know, let your words always be gracious. So I think a lot of it, it's just so much of it, not, I, I would argue that over 90% of it has a lot less to do with the things that we're saying and a lot more to do with the way that we're saying it. Mm-hmm. Because 
Christ, Christ was gracious. The only one he, he, that he came down hard on, exactly what you said, Carrie, or, or, were the bullies. The bullies right. were the one that he was hard on. And everybody else, he had this great patience. There's just amazing patience. Well, that's true, Scott. And, I, you know, it's interesting because often in apologetics, we'll quote another religion, but we'll take the worst of it. And Paul did something very interesting. I think it was Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He was quoting in Acts 17, if my memory's correct. Yep. And he actually took something that sounds like it could have been lifted from Psalms or Proverbs. And he actually said, as a compliment, here's the common ground. And let me look at your intention. And so when you approached, you know, young professionals working in Manhattan, living in Manhattan, with that approach, did the conversation end up going a lot better? Yeah. I mean, even if people end up disagreeing with you, they they appreciate the conversation. Look, I've never been in a more secular city than New York. Right. Less less than 10% of the people in in Manhattan, well, a lot less than 10% of the people living in Manhattan, which was where we were identify as Christian. Mm-hmm. I've never been in a, a city that's more respectful toward pastors and people in ministry. Really? How so? Because they appreciate spirited dialogue. They appreciate, uh, they appreciate processing differences out loud, and they're mm-hmm. not afraid to do that. And, and nobody's going to reject you outright or treat you poorly. I, nobody's. That's an overstatement. Yeah. But very few people are going to disrespect you if you treat them with respect. And, mm. and, and, and in the way that you say the things you do. And so maybe that's a nugget. You know, it's very interesting you use the term respect because I think that's what's lacking in a lot of the polemics and a lot of the dialogue today. It's just even a basic respect for people you disagree with, a basic love for people that you disagree with. It's just like, as you said at the beginning, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm going to take out my weapon and show you how wrong you are. Or on the other side, well, I might not think you're right, but who am I to judge and what am I going to do? And I can't say anything. And so you end up with this polarized debate. So can you stay true to your beliefs and be vibrantly engaged in culture? And if so, how? Like, you know, a lot of, there's that whole Christian separation thing, you know, be in the world, not of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there is a fear in some circles of culture that maybe you get co-opted by it. But I mean, New York is also, a, and Nashville, where you are now, cultural capitals, so to speak, of the country, you know, Nashville in a different way than New York. So how do you do that as a, as a follower of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, you know, Nashville is actually becoming a lot more like, more like New York and a lot mm. less, like, less like the Bible Belt, and very rapidly so. But, but you know, the, the how-to question, again, just goes back to Christ. I mean, Tim Keller says that true tolerance is not about abandoning our convictions. It's how our convictions lead us to treat people who disagree with us. Mm. It's not about not having convictions. It's about having the right kind of convictions. It's about having the kind of convictions that lead you to love people more who who disagree with you rather than loving them less. Uh, Loving people less because they disagree with you, that is fundamentalism. Hmm. In the worst sense of the word fundamentalism. Yeah. You know, loving people more because of your convictions who disagree with you because of your convictions is. What, what I would advocate for in Jesus Outside the Lines is the best public expression of, of what Christianity is all about, because Jesus went around everywhere loving his enemies. In fact, 
every one of us that is a Christian, that was the starting point with our relationship with him, that God demonstrates his own love in, in us or toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were actively opposing him, that's when he reached out to us in love and gave himself completely and fully for us in love while we were still opposing him. And, you know, just this very fact that, that Christ, who had every reason to take offense at us, instead of taking offense at us, gave his life for us, that should make us more than anything the most difficult people in the world to offend. Hmm. And if we are easily offended, if we're always on a hair trigger, we're always looking for something to be offended by, always jumping on the, the bandwagon of internet outrage, uh, always joining this mob over here or this mob over here against whoever the common enemy is and piling on, then we need to, we need to ask ourselves, have we really met Jesus? Have we really encountered the Jesus of the scriptures? Because if it's true that, that, that he loved us to the full extent while we were still opposed to him, then we should be almost impossible to offend. And, and, we, and we should be very, very unoffensive as, as human beings in, in the way that we carry ourselves and in the way that we treat, our, treat other people. I mean, the, the Peter said it this way, you know, live in such a way that nobody can say anything bad about you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Even your, that your worst enemies, they can't find anything bad to say about you. So Scott, this is fascinating. This is this is really interesting because I can see as you engage deeper and deeper in the culture. I mean, one of the realities of the modern church is a lot of Christians don't know any non-Christians. And, you know, if they rail against them, it's from their little soapbox or, you know, their their Facebook account or whatever it happens to be. But I can see for people who tend to be on the on the fundamentalist or the the right, if you want to say, that you get into a place where people are living radically different lives, you know, because they don't follow Jesus or they say, they follow Jesus, but they don't share a morality, you start to get your back up and you start to get upset and you almost feel like, oh, I don't want to become unclean. And on the other hand, if you tend more toward the left, then you come into that situation and go, well, I'm not going to judge and I'm not going to, you know, and you say nothing. And as a result, you don't help them. But how do you move into that situation and either find the courage to say something, like to actually address the wrong, or how do you find the courage the courage? to not polarize the debate and be combative if you're on the right. Like, how do you begin to find that space? Because I think almost everybody listening would agree that is very, very rare territory for Christians today to get into the place where because we're Christians, we engage more deeply and we love more fully. Yeah, I, I, you know, you're, you're asking a really big question that could apply to a lot of different hypotheticals. Sure. But, but I think that sort of the broad brush response that's coming to mind right now to your question is to figure out a way to, to deeply love everybody in the equation mm-hmm. and, and not just everybody on one side of the equation. You know, for instance, you know, one of the chapters is about, you know, the whole politics around, around abortion and the life and choice discussion. And mm-hmm. And the problem with that whole discussion, the way it, as I see it, and the way that it's played out since Roe versus Roe versus Wade was was approved here in the states by the Supreme Court, is that that people who are in favor of protecting the child in the womb 
you don't hear a whole you hear a lot of conversation about you know the the rights of the child in the womb but you don't hear a whole lot of public rhetoric about you know the 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 mother advocating for for the mother because the you know the reality is a lot of these women go into abortion clinics 60% of them live under poverty many of those women and many of the other women have men in their lives either a father or a significant other or a husband saying, basically, I'm going to abandon you if you go through with this pregnancy. And so there's a, there's a lot of pressure that is not sympathized with nearly to the degree that it needs to be. And I think Christians have done a, a world-class job of, of saying, hey, look, give us your babies. You know, Instead of aborting them, we'll adopt. I mean, they're, they're, they're just waiting lists upon waiting lists, especially within Christianity, for people who are so eager to adopt. I'll adopt your child with special needs. We've got We've got two friends right now who are actively seeking to to adopt a child with special needs. You wow. know, so so the, that's one shining way that maybe the pro life movement has responded. Sure, but we've got to also those of us who are on the side of the child also have to figure out how are we going to how are we going to you know do our part in taking burdens off of the shoulders of these women who many many of whom feel like they have no other option. How are we going to step in and rectify that? And if you're coming from the choice side of the thing, you never hear the, 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 the human life inside the womb being talked about. You know, a woman has a right to her own body. How about the 50% of the human beings inside the womb who are girls? And, mm. and, and they're not given any right. You know, to get, they're not given a choice. The most powerless person in the equation is not given a voice at all. And right. so, so we've got to figure out how do we, how do we serve and, and relieve the pressure and relieve the burdens on both sides of this equation rather than just locking down on one side and caricaturing the other side. But what you're describing requires engagement. It actually requires you to stop just talking and maybe get to know a mom and yep. and mm-hmm. enter her world, which I think, you know, to your point earlier, is exactly what Jesus did. When you look at the debate and the dialogue, you know, there there's a lot of discussion these days about generational changes and do you think this dialogue is different if you're under 40 or over 40? Do you see less <laughs> division in younger adults or more in older adults? Or how is that playing out? Or are there maybe there's no generational differences? Total generational differences. Yeah, I yeah. mean, absolutely. And I, I mean, this is, this is where I live. And I mean, the, the book was actually birthed out of the generational difference because I came into a, a church where I started off three and a half years ago as one of the youngest people in the room in my 40s and now it's this in Nashville where you are now yeah, yeah now yeah now our church is this multi-generational you know we've got four generations you know equally represented here now a few years later and and that dynamic is there where you've got you know your baby boomers politically seem to lean more red state whereas so many of your millennials uh, your younger younger millennials seem to lean more blue state in their sensibilities and and they're all Christians, you know. They all believe in <laughs> yeah. Jesus. They really do. And it's interesting that Jesus, when he selected his 12 disciples, that one of them was an anti-government zealot and the other one was the worst kind of government employee, Matthew the tax collector. And <laughs> Jesus true. said, look, you guys are going to work it out right here, right? Right here and now. You're going to work it out because my kingdom is not of this world. And so hold your politics loosely, right? But absolutely there's a generational difference. And this is what can become beautiful about the church. If we stop hiving off into traditional baby boomer churches and the new progressive millennial churches and we figure out a way 
to get the millennials and the boomers and the, the builders and such under the same roof, under the same king and the same kingdom. You know, it, it can get messy. But we, like, we've got people in our church. I had this one guy recently say, look, you know, I am a committed Democrat, and I would like for you to help me get into a small group full of Republicans. Wow. Not because I want to go in and change them, but I, wa- I want my perspective. I want to learn. I want to learn what the kingdom looks like and what humanity looks like through the eyes of other believers in Christ who see things very, very differently than I do, because I feel like I might have something to learn and, and I might have some blind spots. And when we can start having those conversations, older people getting with younger people and that's huge. cross politically, cross racially, people who make a lot of money, people who are you know barely scraping by in community together, everybody can learn and grow. But the more we hive off into people who just look and think and spend money like us, you know, the, the, the more impoverished we're going to be. I think that's a really good point, and and actually that somebody of the opposite political stripe wants to be in the same room and build relationships with someone he probably fundamentally disagrees with is phenomenal. I think that's great, and I, I think that's true. You know, we talk about we talked about the whole sexual identity, sexual minorities. Reality is, most people who go to church don't know any sexual minorities. You know, transgenderism, or at least they they don't know any that they they're, they're aware of that they're aware of. Yeah, they probably do. They just haven't gotten to that point in the relationship. But you know, you don't speak about transgenderism unless you know somebody going in you know, through that right now, that you want to have the conversation. Do you think the relativism of a lot of people in their 20s and 30s will be a permanent impediment to faith? Or or how have you seen that evolve in that younger generation where really relativism is the water from which almost everyone drinks? Yeah, I I don't think it's a permanent impediment because Jesus said that nothing's going to kill his church and, you know, nothing can destroy the church of Jesus, no matter how hard we try. And so, um, you know, if the, the first century, second century Roman emperors couldn't do it, nobody can do it. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and what's going to happen with the millennials kids is that their ki- the millennials kids are going to challenge their relativism, just like the millennials challenge the baby boomers dogmatism. Every generation comes along and corrects. And, and I think this is a prophetic gift in many ways that God gives to each generation is the next generation comes along and corrects the brokenness and and so you, of, of the previous generation and hopefully the previous generation will have an awakening and repent but hmm. i think that's going to happen to millennials because it happens to every generation so their kids are going to go why are you guys so relativistic well i think a lot of the next generation after the millennials will say look this isn't worked for you you know, legalism doesn't work. Uh, it leads to all kinds of dysfunction. And who feels that more than the children in the home? And license and relativism doesn't work. And it leads to all kinds of dysfunction and inconsistencies. Like, you know, the millennials' parents are going to say, Mom and Dad, you, you know, you, you bang this drum of tolerance, you know, all of your life and how important it is to be tolerant and how important it is to be tolerant. But you're some of the most intolerant people I've ever met toward people who don't agree with you about tolerance. <laughs> And, and so there it is. And, 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 and that's what's likely to happen because it happens with every generation. 
Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, I went through some of my higher education in the late 80s and early 90s. And I remember profs who were products of the 60s, you know, and they're now all in their 40s or whatever when I was in school. And they couldn't believe how conservative our generation was. And what is wrong with you? And, you know, what's yeah. wrong? But we looked at like them the and Jesus said, people? Uh, yeah, the Jesus people and the, uh, you know, the hippies, the Vietnam draft dodgers, the free love people. And they looked at this young generation coming up and they were just like, what did we do wrong? It was, it was fascinating. Well, that might be your answer because the 60s generation and the millennial generation have very, very similar views of the world. They really do. Grandma and grandpa and the kids. You may have answered your own question there, too. <laughs> I, think, I think maybe. So I know we're going to have a lot of listeners as we wrap up, Scott, who are, are going, oh my goodness, I live in a world of polarized conversations. My church, my workplace, my neighborhood, my friends online is just, it's just all polarized. So where would you suggest they start? Like if they're like, okay, I got to get out of this mess and I don't know how to get out of this mess. Helpful conversation, but what's one or two things they could do to just start a better dialogue? You just really threw me a softball. I mean, I, the only answer I can give to that is pick up a copy of Jesus Outside the Lines. There and, you go. We'll link to that, by the way. In all seriousness, I, I wrote the book to, to, to help people who are wrestling with that question. Mm-hmm. And, and I try to pick out some of the most, you know, I guess, common points of contention that are happening culturally around, you know, sexuality, politics, the use of money. Why are Christians such hypocrites? Yeah, and, and so on. And, and, and hopefully the book can be a, a resource for that. I've got free study resources on my uh, blog for, for people who want to go through the book with, with a group. Uh, it's scottsauls.com, free resources there. But, but, but I think, too, just find a, find a, a communicator or two, like, like a Tim Keller who's talking about these things all the time and who's speaking into a a culture that that actually disagrees with his views on many mm-hmm. things, but he happens to be doing so really effectively. And listen to people like that. There's another one named uh, John Dixon, who's an Anglican or Episcopalian uh, minister in Australia, who okay. uh, and he's uh, part of the uh, Center for Public Christianity, which is a, there's they got a website and everything. But they they've got some really great stuff, and and just the way that John Dixon engages these issues, you know, through video, like little short 15 minute YouTube videos is another great resource. Okay. We will link to those and to your book in the show notes and uh, a shout out to all of our Australian listeners. There are actually quite a few, which is, which is great. So, okay. And I think that's good. And Keller, I mean, I listen to Tim Keller a lot and he is so funny because he'll tear a strip off the Democrats and then in the next breath, do the same for the Republicans and talk about where Jesus lands. And yeah. Yeah. just just brilliant at it. And and in a way, too, I mean, he is a baby boomer. Tim's in his 60s, but has a real connection with that next generation. I mean, uh, Redeemer is full of 20 and 30-somethings, which yeah. is super cool. Another one to watch is John Tyson. Yes. Sort of an up-and-comer up in, in uh, New York City, good friend of mine. You know, I, I just, when I introduce him to people, I, I introduce him as New York's next Tim Keller. I, I, you know, I... I Except he's different. He's not trying to beat him. He's just uniquely himself. And, and his whole movement, Trinity Grace Church and uh, Center for City Renewal, is also just an incredible resource for people. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he's somebody I've been listening to as well. Just a, just a great, great leader. So, yeah, and I think, I think you find that middle way. You really find that middle way or the third way or however you want to put it. Easiest place for people to find you, Scott, online? 
scottsauls.com. That's uh, S-C-O-T-T-S-A-U-L-S.com. I write a weekly blog there and there's a whole you know, resource section for using the book productively with, with others. Scott, I want to thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. And thanks for helping us get away from the polls. That's a good thing. Okay. Thanks, Carrie. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. Hey, that was so encouraging just just to hear that. And I don't know what your takeaway was. I mean, for me, just to know that somebody cares about this and is willing to write about it and, and show us that third way is is awesome. I just think that's great. And so, again, if you're a good person, make sure you comment somewhere civilly today. That, that, would, that would be a huge gift. So if you want more information, you can find all of Scott's personal links and more about his book simply at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 49. And we'd love to hear a comment from you too. Maybe you know, you've got something you want to add to this discussion. We, we would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment in the blogs because I have still left comments open on my blog for people like you. So, so that's awesome. Um, hey, next week we are coming back. We are at, are you ready? Episode 50. Episode 50 already? Wow, we are coming up on a year and you're going to hear from Barnabas Piper. And Barnabas is going to talk about growing up as a pastor's kid. Now, he grew up as a pastor's kid, but he also grew up in John Piper's home. That's right. Barnabas is John's son. And he wrote a really fascinating book a couple years ago all about growing up as a pastor's kid. We're going to talk about his experience, what it was like having a famous dad as a preacher and what it was like, you know, because I know a lot of pastors listen to this podcast, what it's like to grow up in your home. Barnabas is honest. He's real. He's authentic. He's a 31-year-old leader in his own right now. He has his own podcast, actually. We'll do all the links next week, but I think you'll really enjoy it. That's episode 50. Best way to make sure you don't miss it is to subscribe. It's free on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Thank you for leaving reviews and ratings and sharing the messages that help you with your friends. Helps get the word out. And we're back next Tuesday, and I can't wait to have that conversation because I really hope it helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.